yeah, it was the most traumatic time in my life, just having to having to resolve and reconcile in my mind that I just shot another human being. It was November 20th, 1984, a brisk morning on the south side of Chicago. Billy Moore hadn't woken planning to shoot anybody, but the last thing he did before he left the house was pull a 22 caliber pistol out from beneath his auntie's mattress. See, someone had stolen $10 from his cousin, and he was going to her school to get it back. Maybe flashing the gun would help. When I went up to Simeon High School and found out um, basically the situation got resolved because the guy just gave me the money to get to my cousin. With the 10 spot return, Billy, along with his buddy, Omar Dixon, had nothing to do but kill time. So that's what they did. It had to be around 12 in the afternoon. Uh, I was standing on the sidewalk in front of the school store, maybe a half a block down from the school. When from behind, I got shoved uh, real hard to the point to where I almost fell. And when I turned around, the young man just kept walking. And he was very, very tall, like the tallest. At that point, I would, I would describe him as being the biggest person that I've ever seen. And one word led to another. And basically, it just became a situation where he was so aggressive that even when I unzipped my jacket just so he could see the gun, you know, he refused to back down. I never thought that I was going to be in a position to use a gun. I thought I could just bluff. I think we both, as young men, allowed our emotions, our pride, and everything that we try to use in terms of ego to get in the way. That didn't allow us to be able to resolve a conflict without it turning into what it did. Billy Moore didn't know it at the time, but he had just shot Benji Wilson a brand new father, son, brother, and the number one high school basketball player in the country. Uh, but I kind of, you know, come to a, a, a real hard truth that when you pick up a gun, you get gun problems. I'm Adam McKay, and this is Death at the Wing. Tonight's episode, an abandoned city, a flood of guns, and a promising basketball player in the wrong place at the wrong time. Ben Wilson was no ordinary 17-year-old. He was a star basketball player at his Chicago high school, and there were stars in his future as well. But Ben Wilson is going to be one of the great players in this state before his career is finished. No doubt. 16 seconds, 50, Little Rock Island team. Tonight, many in Chicago are grieving. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Backcourt, this is Binion. Goes all the way and down the lane. Has it blocked by Benjamin Wilson. Wilson kicks it out. He was, he was like a Magic Johnson, 6'8 six, eight, six, eight point guard, smooth as could be. It wasn't that he would come out and score 30 or 40 or 50 every night. It wasn't like that. What I remember more than anything was his passing, not his scoring. That's Arnie Duncan the only former Secretary of Education to play professional basketball and against Benji Wilson. The Obama cabinet member has played his whole life, spent some time as a pro in Australia, but he never forgot the big man with the soft touch and next level court vision from his hometown. But ben Wilson is gonna be one of the great players in this state before his career is finished. No doubt. Yeah, oh man, Oof. just uh, poetry in motion, just smooth as silk, be that skilled, and that unselfish and be able to see the court like he did. I had never seen a player of his size ever you know, have that kind of a game. A revolutionary point forward prototype for players like Scottie Pippen, Ben Simmons, or LeBron James. Do it all wings with the size to take it down low and the skills to take it outside. He would dominate a game and he would dominate it, you know, by, by being the leader. We'll see Wilson on this play. Frank alluded earlier that he looks taller than 6'7". I don't know about that, but he should place taller than 6'7", as we'll see right here. On the court, Wilson was a sensation. The first high school player from Illinois ever ranked number one in the country. But off the court, he was just a teenage kid trying to navigate the South Side. Benji had grown up in Chatham. Chatham had once been an almost idyllic escape from the violence of Chicago. But in the 80s, that was changing. Oh, man, it was the shooting, I mean, gang-banging. Drug territory was really huge back then. Carjacking, sticking up. That's Ronnie Fields, another Chicago Hoops legend who was a highly-ranked high school superstar. And he remembers how the streets of the city were overrun with violence. Especially when the drug game picked up and people was getting money you know, rivalries and all those things. People trying to kill each other for whatever reason, territory. Chicago was being torn apart, and that wasn't by accident. The Reagan revolution had been swept into office in 1980, in part as a way to, quote, reclaim our national identity, to embrace hope over malaise after a decade of depressing news with Watergate and the Vietnam War. I ask you to trust that American spirit some say that spirit no longer exists, but I've seen it. It's still there. And Ronald Reagan was a professional at making people feel good. Above all, we must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. But what came with Reagan in his pitch-perfect delivery was a darker truth a narrative of the us versus them, and he left little doubt who the them was. It was a delivery that Reagan perfected, but one that the GOP had been workshopping for decades. You start out in 1954 by saying Lee Atwater, deputy manager of Ronald Reagan's 1984 campaign, told an interviewer about how Republicans shifted their language. By 1968, you can't say hurts your backfire so you say stuff like uh, force busing states rights and all that stuff and you're getting so abstract now you're talking about cutting taxes 
in a byproduct of the mayor, blacks get hurt worse than whites. It's stunning to hear a GOP strategist be so blunt about the rhetorical game that was being played. You follow me? It's a hell of a lot more abstract than that. But that was the game being played. And it was one that Reagan knew how to play down to his bones by the time he was the GOP's standard bearer. He would say, you know, um, I understand your anger when you're when you're standing in line waiting to buy hamburger and there's some young fellow ahead of you buying a T-bone steak with food stamps. That's Ian Haney Lopez, a professor of public law at the University of California, Berkeley. And there's that idea that Black people are ripping off the welfare system. And not only that, but when they rip off the welfare system, they're doing better than whites. In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, social security... With wages being cut and unions being busted up, a lot of white voters were flat-out angry. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. And the Republican Party was there to channel that anger in one direction, towards race. With the idea that, hey, government can't lift people out of poverty because it's actually being ripped off by people whose culture is lazy and larcenous. Reagan got their votes, and these voters got to feel superior, if only for a moment a cultural con that played with fire. But of course, what they were doing was lending their support to a political party whose actual agenda was support for plutocracy, for rule by and for the rich. Massive tax cuts, bigger tax cuts in the country had ever seen before. And what did the GOP pair with their socialism for the rich? Austerity for the poor. Slashed social spending. Big cuts to welfare, big cuts to infrastructure, big cuts to education, to investments in cities. The residents of the South Side and the students of Benji Wilson's Simeon High suddenly found themselves cut loose from a half century of reforms. Few social services were geared towards them anymore, supposedly so they wouldn't cheat the system, leaving places like Chatham to fend for themselves. For Benji Wilson, this neglect may have cost him his life. After he was shot, he was rushed to a hospital, but then waited hours to be seen by a doctor. The facility was not equipped to handle his wounds. Billy Moore knows this story all too well. They sent Benji to a hospital that didn't have a trauma surgeon, uh, that wasn't a trauma center, you know. Oh and, my God. That's kind of that's like the uh, narrative of Chicago in spite of so many gun victims and, and shootings in Chicago, there's not a, a real major trauma unit on the South Side. According to Benji Wilson's family, he wasn't given oxygen or even an IV. He was assumed to be just another gangbanger. He had bled internally for maybe almost three hours before he went into surgery. Ben Wilson was no ordinary 17-year-old. He was a star basketball player at his Chicago high school. His mother actually had signed off on them uh, pulling the cord because he had lost too much blood. And today, Ben Wilson died. 
by this point, Billy Moore had been arrested, sitting in a jail cell awaiting charges. I didn't find out until the next morning, maybe about six that morning, that he had actually had passed. As word of Benji's death spread, Billy Moore and Omar Dixon found themselves caught up in a justice system that was no place for two boys. I say boys because they were 16 and 15 years old. And in order to charge them with murder as opposed to manslaughter, there had to be a motive. So, according to Billy, the police came up with a story that the two boys were trying to rob Benji. Basically, they forced myself and Omar Dixon into signing these confessions, which was a a fabrication. It was a lie. Just six hours had gone by since Mary Wilson took her son off life support. But the grief was already setting in as she spoke to the students of Simeon High. I taught Benji to think positive in every situation. I want you to know today that I find it difficult right now to think positive about Benji's leaving us. The Lord must turn to our hearts as well as our streets. But as Reverend Jesse Jackson gave a stirring eulogy at Benji Wilson's funeral in front of 10,000 people. We cannot live by the law of the jungle. People kept getting shot. But the law of the jungle did prevail over the holiday weekend. Frightened parents hurried their children home from school near the project Wednesday as rumors of more gang shootings persisted. And the reason that violence combined with poverty turns into gun deaths, that's a gun problem. When you pick up a gun, you get gun problems. And that's a very American problem. That's coming up next. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Since the very beginning in America, guns have been part of our mythology. Are you handy with a gun? Yes, sir. Reload. You think of the Minutemen grabbing the muskets, the citizen soldier going to fight for freedom. Do it! Do it! Do it! The whole idea of gun control never really occurred to anyone in the 19th century until, of course, they started thinking about the fact that they didn't want black people to have guns. So in 1865 and 1866, the first efforts at gun control were used for this reason. 
They were part of the so-called Black Codes, laws implemented in Southern states to restrict the rights of African-Americans. Fast forward to the 1960s in the civil rights movement, and you find white officials desperate to keep guns out of the hands of the so-called, quote, troublemakers. Even Martin Luther King Jr., a total pacifist, had his application for a permit to carry a weapon denied. But it was the Black Panthers that really scared white folks. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense calls upon the American people in general, and the black people in particular, to take careful note of the racist California legislature. In 1967, the Panthers staged a protest at the California State Capitol, armed with a collection of 357 Magnums, 12-gauge shotguns, and 45 caliber pistols. A well-armed militia, if ever there was one. Racist police agencies throughout the country are intensifying the terror, brutality, murder, and repression of black people. As local news stations broadcast these images all around the state, the then governors signed one of the first modern gun control bills, known as the Mulford Act, into law. There is absolutely no reason why out on the street today a civilian should be carrying a loaded weapon. Yeah, of course that governor was Ronald Reagan. Who else did you think it would be? And the NRA, of course, during all this time was doing exactly what you'd think they would be doing. They were celebrating Earth Day and they were fighting to protect the polar bears. I'm actually not kidding. That's really what they were doing. See, back then, the NRA was a sportsman's club. They were all about marksmanship, gun safety, appropriate behavior. They even were in favor of the 1968 Gun Control Act, which was passed in the wake of the assassinations of JFK, MLK, Bobby Kennedy. The National Rifle Association has fought long and hard for practical and for sensible gun laws aimed in the right direction. Keep guns out of the hands of the criminal, the juvenile, the mental misfit, the dope addict, the habitual drunkard. In other words, back then, the NRA supported smart, sensible gun control. So what the fuck changed? Well, Frank Smythe, author of the NRA, The Unauthorized History, knows the exact moment the NRA went from saving the planets and gun etiquette to the NRA we know and have feelings about today. In 1977, the, the NRA underwent something that its leadership today does not want to talk about, but that remade the organization and that uh, created the modern NRA as we know it today. And that event was the Cincinnati Revolt, when at the NRA annual meeting, a group of hardline activists in the NRA managed to organize a takeover with a strict uh, take on gun rights, that there would be no compromise, something the NRA has maintained to this day. But it also began efforts to start rolling back gun regulations and ultimately rolling back even that 1968 law by 1986, within eight years. In 1986, just two years after Benji Wilson was shot and killed, Congress passed the Firearm Owners Protection Act, a federal bill that started to loosen restrictions on guns in America. It prohibited a national registry of dealer records, limited ATF inspections to once per year, and allowed licensed dealers to sell firearms at gun shows. All in all, it made it easier to sell guns and ammo to anyone, anywhere, for any reason. And what it did is it began to open the floodgates even further for, uh, for handguns in particular to proliferate throughout American society and especially in inner cities. Chicago was smart. 
the city actually passed laws in the early 80s that effectively made it illegal to register a handgun. But it wasn't enough. Chicago has gun control, and, uh, and Illinois has gun control, but other states do not. It's very easy for someone to go to a state like West Virginia, where the laws are quite lax, and then buy a trunk full of weapons, drive to a city, and then sell them illegally. It's as simple as that. The more legal weapons, the easier it is for anyone to get their hands on them. It doesn't take a genius to recognize what comes next. These weapons end up uh, fueling uh, crime activities throughout these, these communities. A street corner in Chicago can feel like a million miles away from the halls of Congress or the offices of the NRA, but there's a direct line. So this is an organization that is far more radical than what it was before, and it was continuing to promote their gun rights agenda. With gang violence spreading throughout the city and illegal guns flooding in over the state border, a fuse was lit, a fuse that is yet to go out. And this also created an opportunity for the people in power, chance to turn Chicago into the ultimate dog whistle, the boogeyman that would scare white America, and to argue not for fewer guns, but for more. The NRA believes that America's laws were made to be obeyed and that our constitutional liberties are just as important today as 200 years ago. Now, Ronald Reagan was all for gun ownership, so long as it was the right sort owning them. And if a few slipped through the cracks and caused some carnage, well, that was just the price of freedom. A black and white problem, with only one side paying the price. The Constitution says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A 28-year-old woman, her 9- and 5-year-old daughters, and their 7-year-old cousin, all murdered last week on Chicago's south side. Gun violence has continued to plague the city of Chicago in the decades since Benji Wilson's death. And so has the anger that results from lives being lost for seemingly no good reason. Arnie Duncan, the former basketball player who went on to serve in Obama's cabinet and actually played against Benji Wilson, well, for years, he held on to a hatred against Billy Moore. But after his time as education secretary, he returned to Chicago and began to work on an anti-violence initiative. And something remarkable happened. I'm on a peace march, and um, someone says, Billy Moore's here, do you want to meet him? And I was hesitant to do so, but I'm, I'm like, okay. So Billy Moore and I walked and talked and um, heard his story. Um, he served 20 years and has devoted his life to trying to reduce violence. Arnie didn't just find forgiveness with Billy, he found a common purpose. Um, Billy Moore now works with me, Billy's on my team and um, I would trust Billy Moore with my life. 
He is a remarkable leader in the community, helping us to reduce and fight violence. So it's a, it's a complicated, complicated world. So complicated that 34 years to the day that Benji's life was taken, Billy Moore found himself in the last place he ever thought he would be. Uh, November 20th, 2018, I had the opportunity to sit across the table with his two younger brothers, you know, and actually apologize to them for, you know, what took place between me and their brother. I, I needed to look them in the face and, and get them what they wanted from me. One of the brothers kind of still held you know, a lot of resentful energy uh, because he told me that I was in a state of denial. Like, I really couldn't understand what I had done to them. And I told him, I said, well, I had a son. My only son was killed in 2016. I said, you still got a brother sitting next to you. I don't have nothing. My son is gone. So I totally understand the grief that I caused you. That's why I'm sitting here today. And I think once he understood that, a big weight lifted in the room and we were able to embrace each other. And Anthony Wilson, the youngest brother told me, he said, you know, uh, you, you took my brother away from me and now you have the responsibility of being my brother. And that was kind of like mind blowing. It blew me away. The reconciliation that Billy had with the Wilson family and the Chicago community is truly one of the more remarkable, beautiful things I've ever seen. And every day in Chicago, there are people working with kids in communities to make life better. Ronnie Fields, the Chicago basketball legend, is one of those people. He knows there's no quick, easy solutions, but every day he gets up and he does what he can. So... It's showing them outside of their environment. Life is not all about drugs, game banging, and all these other things. And those kids don't know if they've never been out of it. Sometimes they just grow up in a difficult situation and it's passed alone, generation to generation, until one of the family or someone that changes it. But investing in these communities, breaking the cycle, well, that costs money. Money that has been drained from them or even used against them. So here's the thing, like Chicago, the police budget is $1.8 billion a year, right? And we have six times as much violence in Chicago than we do in New York, which, you know, they three times the size of Chicago. So the police don't really go about trying to prevent crime, they just respond to it. You have to invest the way you invest in police, you have to invest in the social and economic standing of communities that suffer the most violence, that suffer the most homicides. The, you know, the disinvestment and the neglect of these communities produce four, 500 killings a year. And Banks intervals, six, four guards. Here's Wilson. And oh. talented. What an acrobatic, nice move to the basket. 10 points. As for Benji Wilson, well, he hasn't been forgotten. Not in Chicago, not if you look at Jawan Howard, Nick Anderson, or Derek Rose, all of whom have worn his number at one point or another. Wilson never got the chance to make it to the NBA, but a generation of Chicago players he inspired did. But Wilson's greatest legacy may have come off the court. At the time that Benji Wilson was shot, 
the rule in Chicago was you take the victim to the nearest hospital, whether they have a trauma center or not. That's how Benji Wilson died. He didn't get the proper care. But Benji's story led to the establishment of a trauma unit on the south side of Chicago and to the protocol change of ambulances taking gunshot victims to hospitals with trauma centers. It's hard to even calculate how many lives have been saved by this change. But without large federal and state funding, the problem has gotten worse. Now every generation seems to have another Benji Wilson, a rising talent or sports star whose life has ended far too soon by senseless violence. Brandon Hendricks was a success story in this South Bronx neighborhood. Graduating from high school days ago, he was headed for St. John's to play basketball. But last weekend, he was gunned down at a barbecue. A six foot six, 14 year old basketball phenom, Miller was shot and killed just before 2 p.m. on July 29th on this corner in South LA. My son was my heart. Nobody knows how I feel. I don't know how I feel. No matter what Chicago does, the problems seem to get worse. The budgets get cut, the guns get more powerful, and the NRA, well, they're not so concerned about Earth Day anymore. It's hard to find hope in this dire situation, but that's exactly what Billy Moore has done. What Billy says is that if the guy who killed his son came into our program, that he would take him under his wing and mentor him, that he can't ask for forgiveness and reconciliation if he can't give it. And so coming from a guy who I hated most of my life, um, he's teaching me a lot about forgiveness and, and healing and humanity because you know I have two kids. If someone, I have my son playing in all these neighborhoods now, if something happened to my son, would I be able to bring that person into our work? I don't know if I'm that good a person to be able to do that. But I know, I know um, Billy was beyond sincere, um, is beyond sincere in that commitment. In the United States right now, by some estimates, there are between 300 and 400 million guns on the streets. Assault rifles can basically be purchased in retail stores like they're a leaf blower. Both my daughters have had to sit in bathrooms in their schools during four or five hour lockdowns because someone saw someone with a gun in the parking lot. Last year was a record year for gun sales. But we don't know exactly how many guns are being sold to every minute because the gun industry has lobbied to prevent tracking of firearm sales. And we don't know how many of those guns will end up on city streets. We could probably guess how we'll find out though. We'll hear about it on the evening news. Death at the Wing is a Hyper Object and Three Uncanny Four production. I'm your host and executive producer, Adam McKay. Jody Avergan is our executive producer and story editor. Raghu Manavalan is our senior producer. Brian Steele is our producer. We got booking help from Catherine Shoemaker. Our assistant producer is Shane McKeon. Archival research from Jason Helig. Fact-checking from Will Tavlin. We got legal help from Allison Sherry. 
Nuna Sharafuddin is our production manager. Very special thanks to Stacey Robert Steele. This show is mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Music composition by Beacon Street. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson at HyperObject and Laura Mayer at 3 Uncanny 4. If you like this series, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show. And make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us and it helps others discover the show. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments about this show, send us an email. We'll be doing a bonus episode at the end of the series talking about more stories and answering your questions. Our email address is DATW at hyperobjectindustries.com. That's DATW for death at the wing at hyperobjectindustries, all one word, dot com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ghost Panther, or you can reach us by sending a letter through the estate of George Mikan. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more Death at the Wing.